Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? You know, everything he said in and of itself may not be a problem. If there was one statement that Russell talked about that clued me into the fact that he had a sexual addiction is because he had the compulsive feeling that Whatever he wants something and he gets it, it just isn't enough. And wow, that is that experience that takes an addict to the next thing. You know, when I work with addicts, they very clearly say to me, you know what, I am happy with what I have until I'm not And I'm almost invariably never happy after a while. And so when I stop using sex to medicate me, one of the things that happens is as I'm sitting there white-knuckling it saying, I don't need this, I don't need this behavior, I don't want this behavior, the next thing that happens is that they go, what else is out there? What am I missing? What haven't I seen? Who haven't I seen? And that starts them into the addictive cycle again. So that's why, you know, Russell says, I love sex. And I say, hey, Russell, you have a self-esteem issue. Well, it's not because he loves sex that he has a self-esteem issue, but it is that he isn't happy. So there's something inside of him that cannot sit peacefully and experience the world. You know, and he says, I travel all over the country, and I'm always looking for sex. So, Russell is not that unusual, 
because if you're listening to the show and you're a sex addict, whether it's pornography, uh, exhibitionism, voyeurism, fraudism, chat rooms, websites, uh, you name it, if you can't sit with yourself without having that compulsion to participate in something that disconnects you from yourself, let alone your relationships, then I got to I got to tell you that in and of itself is a problem. And I so want you to handle that. But you cannot do it alone. Okay? I promise you you cannot do it again alone. So, I love this show because you can get on this show and talk about things that you really want to talk about. And I'm going to spend the next couple of shows talking a little bit about an email I got from a listener. We'll call her Mary. And she says, hey, Carol, I love listening to your podcast and find it very helpful in my journey. Right now I'm at a crossroads and don't know if my marriage is going to work. My husband is about to do a step one, but our relationship has not improved during his time in Sex Addicts Anonymous. Actually, I think it's Sexaholics Anonymous. In fact, it's gotten worse, and he sleeps downstairs now. He has mother enmeshment issue and takes his rage out by yelling at me, breaking things, doing subtle things within the relationship like withholding love and affection. His therapist says that being married is triggering his abuse memories, and he misdirects his anger towards me. Okay, right there I want to stop you, Mary, because that very well may be true. We don't know. You don't, you don't sit with this therapist, nor do I. But if he's breaking things and he's yelling and he's being abusive because somehow you trigger him and make him think about his abuse issues with his mother, we got to talk about boundaries because you don't deserve that. You didn't ask for this. I'm sure he's having difficulty with his sexual addiction. And if anybody's heard my show or knows me, they know that I stand firm for both the addict and the partner. But I really think boundaries are helpful. They're helpful for anybody individually, and they're actually healthy in the coupleship. So let me read on. And I'm going to ask you to be thinking about what your boundaries could be. You say that you were recently diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder by your APSATS therapist. Oh, good. I'm glad you've got an APSATS therapist. Because usually when you've been trained in sexual addiction and you're a CSAD or you've been trained with partner trauma and you're an APSATS, you're getting somebody who is really skilled in the field. And you say, I definitely can't deal with the yelling, which has been dramatically better since I asked him to leave the bedroom. Okay, good. That's the boundary. You know, if you don't feel safe, you have every right to ask him to leave the bedroom. Now, if he refuses, then I hate to tell you this, but then you need to leave. Because the most important thing you got to do is keep yourself safe. Now, you say, however, there is something specific which really deeply affects me that I would like your input on. He still has not made amends or even given a sincere apology for having an affair a year ago with an old coworker who was married with several children. He was trying to hook up with her, with 
um, a PPL from the Internet on top of this, plus looking at porn, the entire dating relationship. At the time, he apologized in our therapist's office, but several months ago during an argument, he blurted out that what he did was not cheating, although he was covering up that he was sexting and trying to find times to have sex with her, which I discovered when she texted him provocative pictures when we were driving in the car together. So, let's see here. I mean, I'm already going, okay. So after he said that, I told him that I wanted a divorce. Okay, that's another boundary. You wanted a divorce. And I think that's a normal reaction to being blatantly disregarded and abused. However, I do believe he's in the middle of his cycle, his sexual addiction cycle. And, you know, you say you want an amends, but if he's only on step one, and I know he's been in SA for five months, but if he's only on step one, That amends process happens in step nine. So he's got a lot of work to do. And I would almost say to you, he isn't going to get to the truly, the formal amends process for a year. So I just want to let you know that. Um, They can do uh, a step a month. You know, Patrick Carnes and Charles Brown say, hey, you can do all 12 steps in an afternoon. But I would think most people would really argue with that because you've got to give it some intense time and you've got to work it out with your sponsor. And that's why you're not there to do his inventory. But I'm just going to explain to you that he should be working diligently with his sponsor. And if he's been in the program five months, it's time he gets done with his first step, get on with his second. Because, you know what, he probably should be on at least step number two, if not step number three. So after you ask for a divorce, you also talked with your non-APSATS therapist who said you needed to give it more time. Well, the first anniversary of the affair was a couple days ago, and it's been emotional and difficult for you. He told me, however, today that he doesn't really think about it anymore because it's in the past and he doesn't dwell on it. I'm so upset. He seems to have absolved himself without ever taking responsibility. He knows that I'm hurt about him not expressing true remorse or doing things to earn my trust back. Okay, let me just tell you. He may not be getting good advice or he may not be following good advice he's getting. But for any sex addict out there, when they're acting out or... When they've stopped acting out, they should be working with you on empathy. And that really means every time you get triggered, as hard as it is for him, and this is hard, they go into a place of shame when you get mad. But every time that you get mad, they should be saying, you know what, I get it. I've really hurt you. I can see that you're triggered right now. I am so sorry. Or maybe they take the sorry out of it and they just say, I can see that you're triggered. I know I caused that a long time ago. And I want better things for you. 
here's what I'm willing to do to make you feel safe because I'm part of this. I'm part of our partnership, and I want to do the next right thing. All right, I know that may sound like a fairy tale, but truly that's how I work with addicts. I teach them empathy so that when you get triggered, they try not to take it personal, even though they know they're at the source of your pain, and they reassure, validate, and acknowledge, and they share empathy. Now, these skills sound easy, but they're not. And that's why we have to work with the addict and teach him or her the skills, and then we work in the coupleship and watch how you do that. So then you want him to take responsibility. He knows that I'm hurt about him not expressing true remorse or doing things during my trust back. Does he sound like an addict or like someone with bigger problems? Well, I don't know about the bigger problems, but he's definitely sounding just like an addict. I really don't know how to move forward in the relationship with someone who doesn't care enough about me to right their wrongs. I, I believe he probably is trying to right the wrongs, but he may not be getting the kind of um, help and advice that he needs to to work on the coupleship while he's working on himself. You see, the old model of sex addiction and 12-step work used to say, hey, you got so many problems, you need to work on yourself, get your stuff together, and when you get it all worked out, then you can work on the relationship. But what I know to be true, since I'm APSATS trained, and I do believe they're talking about this in ITAP, which certifies sex addiction therapists, they're saying you've got to do this from the get-go. It's got to be that delicate balance of I will work on my relationship and work on my own recovery, and I can do them both. Now, you're not sure if the person you married even has a conscience. The whole topic of addiction and what spouses can and should expect is really fuzzy for you. You know what, Mary? I get that. You said you even contacted another podcast, and I won't say the name, and you were advised that your husband can't be expected to have any remorse until step nine. Well, I would disagree with that person, and I know that person. He's an excellent, excellent recovering addict. But what he's saying is, you know what, in the 12-step process he isn't really going to work on that till step nine and i'm saying if he's working with a csat and you're working with an apsats the two counselors need to get together and decide how to work this coupleship and that apsats therapist your apsats therapist knows how to do that and if they're having trouble they can contact me at Carol and carolthecoach.com. I supervise APSATS counselors. I did a training last week. We trained 18 clinicians. We're really helping couples really be attentive to the spouse because you're the one who's going through all the pain of the collateral damage that occurred because of the sexual addiction. Okay, so now last but not least, 
you say, everyone I talk to has something completely different to say about this. I just don't understand what expectations to have at what stages. I know with my PTSD, I can't handle a divorce at the moment. God, this hurts. And you know what? I know with PTSD, your executive functioning isn't working real well. And so it's really tough to know what to do next. So here's what I, do, I want to do. I've got my guest who's waiting on the line, but I want to encourage you to contact me next week at the beginning of the show. Just email me. I'll give you the number, and we can talk further. And if you don't want to talk, then you can send me more questions, and I'll be happy to guide you. Here's what I really believe to be true. It's got to be scary because you want to stay in the marriage, but you don't want to be treated this way. And I do believe he can change, but the two of you need to work on the coupleship, and he needs to work on his recovery, and you need to work on self-care boundaries and consequences. So thanks for your email. I'll look forward to hearing from you. And you might listen to the show because I'm telling you, I got this woman on, Dr. Piper Grant, who helps couples heal their fractured relationships And then she takes them to the next level. You two aren't really ready for this. It happens to be healthy sexuality. you got to work the other issues out first. But she's going to be talking about what couples need to do to move their relationship towards intimacy. So, Mary, thanks for your email, and let's keep in touch. I always appreciate being able to help a sex addict or a partner work through their problems. So, Dr. Piper Grant, how are you tonight? I'm so good. Thank you. How are you doing? Well, I am wonderful, and I was super excited to have you on the show because, you know, I come from an APSATS model, and that is a partner trauma model that says, hey, you know, first we need to create safety and stabilization for both the addict and the partner, Then we have to do all the grieving and mourning of what was, what wasn't, and what it could be. And then we have to work on restoration. And truly, healthy sexuality is a part of that. So there aren't a lot of people that talk about that. And you have really made it your mission as a certified sex addiction therapist and the founder of NUMI Psychology to work as a sex therapist and help couples restore that part of their relationship. Tell me a little bit, what made you go into this field? You know, first I just have to say, I think it's exactly as you're saying, it's the last stage of uh, recovery and healing, and it so often gets overlooked. Uh, and so what I actually, I kind of organically came into doing sex addiction therapy work. I uh, have always been interested in human sexuality, and so I was set out to uh, work within the field of sex therapy. And I just was blessed to really fall in under some great supervision and hands of some sex addiction therapist workers. And um, it just, it really resonated with me. And what I saw missing, and yet I knew that I loved and wanted to do, was the melding of the two. Because I was sitting there in my work with couples and individuals. And it was great. You know, we would get through managing the chaos, the discovery, we'd get to maintenance. And then whether or not in relationships still or not, they would get to a stage where it was like, okay, I'm 
I'm ready to now uh, reintegrate my sexuality. And it doesn't all, it doesn't look the same as prior to discovery, you know, but so it's a very, uh, people can feel lost in it. Like, how do I do this? What are we doing? Especially couples, if they've decided to stay together, how do we have this intimacy together? Because it's a sexual wounding. Uh, so it does impact the sex life. And yet, Many couples that I work with, uh, maybe they've been in recovery now for 10 years, and they are saying, okay, we would like to have our sex life back. We just don't know how to get there. Oh, exactly. And so you saw this gaping hole for couples that didn't know how to resume that or maybe even really have healthy sexuality for the first time. Yes, yes. You obviously are very, very skilled because you're not only a CSAT, a certified sexual addictions therapist, but you're also a sex therapist. Now, how do you think that influences your work with individuals and couples in recovery? You know, I think what it actually allows me to do is I think it allows me to work with uh, my clients on the whole spectrum of healing from sex addiction. And similar to how I said, we get to start in the beginning. If I'm, if I'm working with an individual or a couple from the beginning um, of after discovery, perhaps, let's say, uh, we get to go through the steps of managing the chaos and uh, dealing with discovery and looking at getting engaged in recovery plans for both partner and the addict. And then also I feel blessed because I get to work with my clients into those latter stages of reclaiming and defining their new sexuality. And um, I think as a sex therapist and a certified sex addiction therapist, I get to see sex addiction from multi, like from multiple dimensions. Um, for me, it's not just uh, a, like a straight recovery model. I look at it and look at our human sexuality as multidimensional that's impacted by so many different influences in our life and our context and our society. And I think that's important when looking at whole recovery. So I do think that that allows me to kind of look at it from different angles. Well, absolutely. And so how long have you been a CSAT? I have been, um, let's see. Okay. So I have actually been doing Sex addiction therapy work for uh, six years now, I want to say. I took a little bit of a journey getting my CSAT. So I've been a CSAT for a couple of years now. But I was actually working, um, actually how I got introduced to doing sex addiction work was through Alexandra Katahakis at Center for Healthy Sex and also was uh, working with Bill and Ginger Burkaw in Pasadena, and they do also a lot of couples work as well. So that's where I kind of I was able to be exposed to uh, doing sex addiction work. Yeah, we've had both the Burkaws and both. Alex Katahakis on the show yeah. several times because they really do work on discussing how to reintegrate into a healthy sexuality when you've had a fracture that sexual addiction causes. So let's talk about this for a second. When do you think it is a good time to start working towards, well, the healing and reintegration of a healthy sexual and intimate relationship when you're in recovery? You know, I think that this um, is both a good question and can be a hard question. And And I like this question because actually is because I think a lot of couples and individuals do ask me, like, is this a good time? Like, you know, can we start this work now? When can we start this work? And 
while I think that understanding your sexuality, your sexual history, your sexual experiences, your arousal template, that should always be part of your recovery. When we're looking at reintegrating a healthy sexual and intimate relationship, I always look at, is there a solid recovery plan in place? Is that recovery plan being worked? Um, and at that point, then we can maybe move forward towards thinking about how to define their, I, I don't like to say new sexuality because it makes it feel like you're completely leaving this old sexuality, but reintegrating um, their sexuality and reintegrating their sexual pieces. And I also, uh, I always talk to a couple about are both of you doing solid recovery work? Because here's the thing, when you get back in the bedroom, basically what I'm saying, when you get back in the bedroom together, there are going to be, um, we're going to have triggers and there's going to be memories that are going to emerge and there's going to be things that sometimes take us by surprise. So we have to really make sure that the couple and individual are, are solid in their recovery work uh, to then be able to start moving towards looking at how to rebuild this intimate relationship. Okay, so how do you assess for that? Because we have clinicians from both CSAT and SASH and also APSATs that listen to the show. So how do you how do you assess that? So okay, so I think this is a good thing. I think that sometimes I, I don't I don't put a number on it like oh they haven't had a split. If I'm looking at like a couple and I have the addict, I don't say it's necessarily. Um, he or she hasn't had a slip in, you know, X amount of time or the partner has done um, these many exercises. What I try and look at is, one, for the couple, are they having solid communication? So if there is even a relapse or a slip, how do they deal with it? Are they able to really communicate through it? Because I think when you're looking at communication, when you're looking at um, reintegrating sexuality and intimacy together, there has to be an ability to communicate with each other. That's a core foundation of intimacy. Um, and so are they able to uh, process and talk through these, through maybe a relapse together or if there's been a slip or how are they communicating? So I look at the communication. I look at, uh, for the addict, if when I say if there's a solid recovery plan in place, what is his or her recovery plan and are they honoring it? You know, because usually in my work, when I am working with an addict, we have a clear recovery plan. You know, are they going to X number of meetings per week? Are they uh, making sure that they're attending their therapy? Are they doing group therapy? So are they sticking to that? And are they, are they really, um, are they making sure that they're honoring their word and sticking to their recovery plan? For a partner as well, is he or she, uh, if their recovery plan, because same thing when I'm working with partners, are they attending groups? Are they attending meetings? And then when I'm working with together, it's are they on the same page about why and how they are looking to reintegrate their sexual life. So it's a, it's a conversation. It's not like I just say, oh, okay, this is the time. And we talk about it. And we are starting to model communication within the therapy room as to how they're going to start talking about sex. Because then when we'll talk later about, um, you know, how to communicate about these things and, and tools and tips, communication is a big piece. And we have to learn how to talk about sex sometimes within coupleships. Um, and so we just, we start having that conversation and when it feels like, okay, they're on the same page as a couple, they both are, this is something that they both want because you can have one partner, uh, by partner, I mean one spouse, one part of the coupleship uh, who maybe is ready for that work and the other person might not be ready for that work. And so when you're working with a couple, you need to, you need to ensure and assess as a therapist 
to, and I, part of that is just knowing your couple that you're working with and your gut instinct on it. Um, are they ready to move forward towards this work together? Well, and you know, one of the things that we do um, as regular therapists when we're working with people on sexuality is that there are techniques that are way different than where a sex addict goes in terms of lovemaking or sexuality. I mean, clearly, it helps couples if they can look at each other's eyes and watch each other and stay very present in the moment when they're reintegrating sexuality and and saying kind things to themselves and even out loud, like, you know, I really love you, thank you for trusting me, you're amazing, this feels great. You know, all those kind of statements that keep a person in the here and now. And mm-hmm. let's face it, sex addicts have been trained to go into fantasy and replay old tapes of what sex was. And that has to do with pornography and affair partners and things that they don't want to get triggered by. So staying in the moment is such an important quality. And obviously your training as a sex therapist and as a sexual addictions therapist makes you especially um, especially prone to knowing what the traps are and how to prevent those from happening. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting also when you're talking about the being present, because I do, I think about um, commonly sex addiction, is, there's a disassociation that happens uh, in that process, as you were saying, right, and, and there's not being able to be present. And definitely as a clinician, when you're sitting in the room, it's like you have to notice, and, and for any individuals that are listening to this on recovery, it's like being aware of your um, ability to sit in that, right? And so when I'm working with a couple, I'm watching their ability to be, as you're saying, present with each other, to tolerate eye gazing with each other or even touching. I mean, I sit in the room and I might just have my clients reach out and uh, touch each other on the knee. You know, just simply, how does that feel? What is that like to feel your partner's touch on you? And those are little steps towards even assessing, because this isn't, we're not talking about like, hey, how do you just get back in bed and have sex with each other? We're talking about, right, and we're talking about connectedness. Uh, And that's far deeper and actually harder uh, to be emotionally present and intimately present with your partner. Yeah, because that's all about vulnerability. And let's face Mm -hmm. it, most sex addicts have avoided vulnerability by using sexual addiction techniques. And by acting out and by medicating with sexual addiction. And mm-hmm. vulnerability is a very tough place for anybody to be in, let alone somebody who's been wounded, whether that was before they developed the sexual addiction or after as a result of the sexual addiction, and certainly for the partner too. Yes, I'm happy you mentioned the partner because that's what I was going to say as well. Is like The partner as well might have, been vulnerable and then been wounded by the addict or uh, had also not been comfortable with vulnerability due to their own history or experiences. Uh, so it, it's a, it can be a messy road sometimes and yet also a really, I have to tell you, one of, I, I just, I'm smiling here because I just think of so many people and couples that I've worked with that 
when they're able to get to that place, it's so beautiful. It's a really beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and so it's, it can be messy, and yet it's possible for people as well. Well, you know, you said messy, and it gets so confusing. You know, one of the things that that I see at least in 30% of my clients upon disclosure, you know, when an addict has either been caught or disclosed um, the affairs and the indiscretions and whatever, um, sometimes, for whatever reason, it pulls couples together and they start having passionate um, Uh emotional sex. Uh And then once everything settles and the reality of, can I really trust you? Are you going to go back to your sexually addictive ways? Or from the addict's point of view, can I trust that you're not going to call me an ass and you're not going to yell at me and scream at me and tell me I've ruined your life? And, you know, the battle that goes on between sex addicts and partners, so then sex becomes scarce. And I know I've talked to many a sex addict that said, well, you know what, I mean, after I shared that or after she discovered we had some really intense sex and now nothing, absolutely nothing, and they're very, very mm-hmm. confused. But, and I get that, you know, sex is complicated and messy anyway, and then you put to, put a trauma in the middle of it, mm-hmm. and it can evoke a lot of different responses that um, are really reactions to the pain. Yeah, and, you know, when you say about the um, initial maybe, like, increase in frequency of sex or the uh, passion, increase in passion of sex, definitely not uncommon. And something that I do hear as well in my work, people get confused about whether the addict or the partner, because equally the partner can be confused by that as well. Uh, and I, And it can mean different things for different people, but often I look at it as a framework of, there can be, it can actually return a coupleship for a brief moment to a sense of homeostasis. Like there's a brief moment where it's like, you are my partner, like we are connected. I still know you are mine. Um, I still know we're together. And it can actually create a sense of security uh, in that brief moment of having sex and after sex. Um, But then as time goes on and recovery is kind of like opening and progressing, it does change the sex for sure. Well, and I know that both of us have worked with couples that upon the discovery, everybody shuts down. Everybody Mm -hmm. shuts down because they're protecting themselves. So what do you find are the most common roadblocks for couples when trying to re-engage sexually? And and so I'm going to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you to kind of describe the stage that they might be in when they're dealing with these common roadblocks? So one of the things, actually, that Dr. Bilberka uh, would say, and I have borrowed this because I I love this term, is he calls them ghosts in the bedroom. And I remember one time hearing him say that, and I thought that was such a wonderful way to put it uh, because I find that the roadblocks are these kind of, these unspoken, one of the roadblocks can be these unspoken or unprocessed, maybe thoughts, concerns, wonderments. And by this, I'll, like, clarify a little bit. When I see a couple and maybe I've, I, they've already done some recovery work and I'm seeing them now they're trying to work on reintegrating uh, sexuality and building up their intimacy, 
I will often ask them, well, how do you guys talk about your recovery work? And more often than not, to my surprise, couples do not have a solid recovery check-in with each other, and maybe they've been doing recovery work for a while or maybe not, and so they don't talk about the work that they're doing. And by that, I don't mean that they need to come home from a meeting and report on their meeting or anything like that. But there's not a lot of communication. And so what I find when we start unpacking that is that both parties are left in a little bit of wonderment and maybe that sparks concerns or thoughts or questions about, hmm, like, what is the other person doing? How are they feeling? You know, where are they feeling? Have they been feeling triggered? Are they not feeling triggered? Have they been close to a slip or a relapse or uh, any of the sort? And that can actually be a major hindrance when trying to reengage sexually because in order to engage sexually, not in order, a, a large part of engaging sexually in committed relationship is feeling psychologically safe. And when there is concerns or wonderment, there might not be a sense of psychological safety. And that might make it really hard then to move forward in having uh, an intimate life together. They might be able just to have sex with each other, but that intimacy and, close, intimacy and closeness. So one of the common roadblocks, again, that I see is these unspoken and unprocessed um, and the reason I say unprocessed, I should notice, is because it's not just about acknowledging it. It's then about talking about it. It's about being able to, again, communicate about them. Another roadblock that I actually see is even though we're talking about sex addiction recovery and the topic of sex, when working with couples about wanting to reengage sexually, they might not know or have the language of how to talk about their sexuality. Um, There's an ability to talk about the addiction and the addiction's impact on either of them. Uh, But when talking about sexuality, it almost becomes back to reverts to that idea of it being almost taboo. Um, And that's because maybe there's no language to maybe even just talk about pleasure, needs, desires, sexual concerns, wants. So another roadblock that I do see is just having language and skills to not only uh, talk about it, but then communicate about it together. When I say talk about it, for one person to just have their language skills, and then the next part is to be able to communicate together about that. Um, And then a third roadblock that I always see in this is kind of integrated throughout it, but is good communication in the sense of, um, I think about Pia Melody's work, talking listening boundaries, because again, thinking about safety within a relationship, we want to feel heard, we want to um, feel like our voice is respected, especially when there's been sexual, um, when there's been sexual betrayal, and it, and it is a betrayal that is of a sexual wounding, we want to make sure that uh, both parties feel heard, a partner especially is uh, feeling like they're uh, being seen and heard. And so definitely being able to know that there's solid communication. It's amazing to me, again, how many couples I see and I ask them if they've gone through any uh, training or just any work as a couple about communication and talking listening boundaries And so many haven't. And that, again, is a key piece to being able to move forward to doing this work. So those, I'd say, are kind of three common roadblocks that I see. 
Well, those were all good roadblocks. And let me just ask you one other thing, because technically, I get this with a lot of gay couples, but I get it from also heterosexual couples, too. Some of their lovemaking prior to sexual addiction, or at least prior to discovery, had to do with role play. Some of it... um, well, okay, so role play, any kind of role play, and I'm not going to go into mm-hmm. it because I don't want to trigger anybody, but now they're saying, can we integrate role play back into our relationship even if some of the role play was exploitive or some of the role play had to do with S&M or some mm-hmm. of the role play had to do with um, aggression and mm-hmm. so, you know, that's always an interesting phenomena. I'll tell you what I say, and then you tell me what you think, and what I know to be true is we can agree, or we can agree to disagree, or whatever. <laughs> it's an individualized situation, but I always mm-hmm. encourage very open, honest, respectful, in the moment, learn how to be with your partner, and get that down before you revert to other types of role play, not because it's wrong, but because I really want to make sure that the coupleship is really embracing each other before they take their life to the next level. And, and you know, I, I'm always saying to the sex addicts I work with, you know, in, in a normal situation, that, that might just be a typical couple's fight. But because you're a sex addict and because you've really wounded her and because I want you to be on your very best game, you can't afford to say something like, oh, sometimes you just make me sick and I wish I were out of this relationship. You know, do normal couples sometimes say that to each other? Sure they do. But because of the wounding, I I hold my sex addicts and partners to a higher standard because I really want them to be the change they want to see in the relationship. Um, what do you tell couples who are perhaps in that second or third stage of building their relationship? They may still be grieving and mourning some, but really kind of externalizing it so they can let it go and then restore about role-playing. What do you think? So it's interesting when you were first talking my i all this is my initial thought is I would want to make sure that both parties are really wanting to are willing participants, and I think that's what I also hear you saying too is that um I think I hear partly of you saying that because that's why I think going back to like the communication, having really processed any of those quote unquote as over as the ghosts in the bedroom because my concern would be about um, one of them agreeing to engage in a role play or some type of sexual play, uh, not from maybe a fully wholehearted, genuine, authentic place, but rather maybe complying or trying to be complacent to the partner for whatever reason. So that's kind of like my initial wanting to assess for that. I also, though, have this and also I think this is my sex, this is definitely my sex therapist side, is there's a lot of uh, healing within a, within a consensual um, 
within a, within a consensual sexual act, there is a lot of healing that can take place. I have seen partner, I've seen, sorry, I've seen couples almost restory uh, an event. Um, I have seen couples engage in uh, role playing that are in recovery almost to like a partner to kind of, they felt disempowered and maybe disempowered them. They were able to play a part and take power back or a role back. Uh, so I do see that yet my hesitation is for that to be heard as something that should be prescribed to everybody because I don't think that it should. I think it has to be very particular to each couple um, and what stages they're at. Are they able to really, you don't know how it's going to go. You know, it could go really bad. They could be engaging in role play and somebody gets triggered. It doesn't work out for somebody. And that's why also, are they safe to be able to say, hey, no, I, I want to stop this. I don't want to do this. This is what's coming up for me. Are they able to work through that? So that's why before kind of getting even to that stage, I would really want to make sure that there's some solid trust and ability to be transparent with feelings and thoughts. And I'm with you about for a couple that's in recovery, for an addict especially, I often say, you know, most couples that I work with, addicts like a couple in recovery or not, they're dealing with sexual dysfunction or maybe difference in desire or um, breaches in, in trust perhaps. Yet, as you're saying, when there's been a sexual addiction, that wounding is so, it can feel, it's so deep. Uh, it's, you have to be a little bit more careful in how you're working towards this kind of work and moving forward in this work. Yes, I absolutely agree with you, and that's a great answer. Now, you know, you are obviously, we're so lucky to have you as sex therapist and a certified sexual addictions therapist. And I don't know about you, but I really believe that ITAP does a beautiful job in training us to help people in the addiction field. And, you are doing retreats that are available for a lot of your clients. So tell us a little bit about the NUMI retreats that they can look at on www.numiretreats.com. Yeah, I, um, as a sex addiction therapist and a uh, sex therapist, I am based in Los Angeles, um, and I, but I actually uh, grew up in in Bali, and so I um, would sit. I, I kind of say it like this: I sit in my therapy office in Los Angeles, and I am sitting there with my couples, and I always sometimes would imagine, as you and I are talking, Carol, about that later stage, that last stage of recovery. I often think that it's not at that point about necessarily always workbooks and worksheets and talk therapy, but I would I imagine movement. You know, we need movement in our life, in our bodies, um, in our hearts and our souls to be able to do this whole healing. And I would dream actually early on about, gosh, if, if my clients could have an opportunity to come to Bali and if I could do work with them where we're outside and we are in like clean air, eating clean food and under the sunshine, uh, how restorative could that be and what an opportunity. And so um, has become a, uh, it's, it's actually become reality, which is really amazing. It's something that I'm really passionate about. I, I really, I 
as I said earlier, I love to be able to work with couples and individuals in this last stage, uh, in, this, in this later stages of recovery. And I think it's important. Um, so the Numi retreats, they're just, they're seven-day luxury retreats in Bali, Indonesia. Uh, they are five-star accommodations. They are three meals a day, fresh meals. We do workshops every single day. There's also cultural excursions every single day. There's a lot of free time. Uh, I have handpicked every single piece of it to the point that we have a small little uh, villa boutique. It's just private for the retreats. There's no other guests there except for retreat guests. Um, and everything is really taken care of. It's just seven days of being able to indulge in your own self-work, work within the coupleship, and uh, take some time to also restore, restore and relax. And how is it that you picked Bali? Uh, because I actually, I grew up there. So uh, I, I, while I am American born, uh, my family moved over there when I was young. So I grew up there. So I've got a lot of connections to Bali in terms of just like heart centered connections to Bali. Uh, I have witnessed firsthand. It's just intrinsic healing qualities. It is a, for anybody that maybe has visited, there is a sense uh, that you feel when you go there of just healing. Um, and so it's just somewhere that I always imagined being able to bring people to engage in this work. And I didn't see anything out there like this for couples and individuals in recovery, um, retreats like this. And so I really wanted to offer it for our community, for everybody. Well, that is a, a wonderful. So if people are interested in finding out more about that, because that sounds very romantic, very private, very spiritual, very clean, um, how how would they go about doing that? Just check out the website. It's www.numi, that's an N-U-M-I, retreats.com. Um, and that has all the information about the retreats. I have retreats for partners, and I have retreats for couples. They are separate retreats. Um, I also do customized retreats for families. I sometimes have families that uh, are going through a healing process and need to kind of have some time away. So I do a whole family healing as well. But primarily I do couples retreats and individual partner retreats. Well, and I know the fact that you do this for partners, I cannot imagine how wonderful that is um, because they really need to trust themselves, work on self-care. You know, I say to addicts and partners alike, but I really say it to the addicts, connection is the antidote for sexual mm. addiction. And for partners, it's self-care and reintegration into who they are and what they want for themselves. And so I can't imagine a better place than Bali to go to to really renew, recharge, and replenish. Yeah, it definitely, and that's what the partners' retreats are about, definitely. It's like reestablishing that trust with self, um, reengaging with the self, and renewing the self. Absolutely. So now, Tell me a little bit more about what you are doing in terms of your own practice in addition to these retreats. What, how can people find out about you? Um, how can they work with you if they're out in California? Yeah, I'm out in Southern California. Uh, so I, you can definitely check out my website. It's NUMI Psychology. So, again, N-U-M-I Psychology.com. Uh, 
and um, I practice in Southern California. I also do offer uh, Skype coaching sessions for people uh, around the country and around the world as well. I do split time between California and Bali now, um, and I run intensives on uh, – I do customize intensives for couples. I, what I actually find with a lot of couples is that maybe they don't have the time uh, to, you know, come over and spend a lot of time with me. So we might do five-day intensives together uh, here in California rather than in Bali. Um, so I offer that as an opportunity to – because, I, I, again, I am passionate about this work. I love this work. I want to make it accessible to people. So I like to work – uh, I like to work in a customized fashion with people that can maybe help them get this work to their into their coupleship to help them move to those different stages. Oh, absolutely. And I can hear your passion. Obviously, you've made it your mission to help repair not only the fractured relationship, but the metaphor for the coupleship, which is their sexuality. You know, so many people come to us and they they are feeling so lost, so confused, so damaged, and they think it's around sex. But what you usually find is mm-hmm. that the damage was there way before they ever entered the coupleship. It has to do with trauma reenactment and sexual wounding and emotional, physical um, and verbal wounding in childhood. Now, not everybody has experienced trauma, but a lot of partners and addicts have. And so really what I think is so specialized about you is that you know how to help them from a psychological standpoint. You're Dr. Piper Grant. You're a licensed clinical psychologist. And then when they're ready, you can really help them focus on the sexual part of their relationship. Do you work with many individuals who aren't in coupleship? That's a good question. I, um, But also in recovery, are you asking? Like specifically uh, like addicts that aren't in recovery, that aren't in coupleship or partners that aren't in coupleship? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have worked with... Um, and do work with maybe people that were start after discovery then ended up splitting in their relationships. Um, so they are considered single, although maybe when I saw them they were together still in a relationship. Um, I definitely work with a number of women, a number of female partners um, who uh, are no longer in relationship. And addicts too, yeah. Now that I'm going through my whole <laughs> um the whole list of everybody and and thinking about my experience. Yeah, I I don't think that uh, it's about whether being in coupleship or not. My work isn't defined by that because our sexuality is experienced by each person individually, whether in relationship or not. So, um, and it's expressed in in different ways, uh, whether in relationship or not. So, and the work is totally possible to do, even if not in relationship, because as you're saying, it isn't about necessarily the sex. It's, uh, so much more it's everything else uh, that led to um, the expression of it as being sex. So it's whether in relationship or not, the work is definitely possible. So as we begin to wrap up, I would just love for you to share with our audience perhaps some um, oh, tips or tools 
that you actually could suggest for an addict or a partner wanting to work towards a healthy and a whole sexuality? Okay, so I would definitely remember that it's a process. Uh, sometimes I tell people, you know, I, I am going to offer tips, but you might one day feel like you're two steps forward, then one step back, three steps forward, or two steps back. So that I just always, like, keep in mind. This is not a one straight road uh, by any means. So any tips or tools and suggestions, we see kind of how they land, and they land differently for each person. Uh, I encourage a lot of self-reflection of looking at your own intimacy um, deficit. And by that, what I mean is, as you and I were talking, there's always a sexual history, and our sexuality is based on so many, it's, it's multifaceted, and it can be based on uh, race, religion, family experience, SES, our context. And so I encourage unpacking those and looking at um, how that impacts your own expression of intimacy and your and any deficits that might be there. Um, making sure that you have looked at and are continuing to process any past sexual traumas and going through your sexual history. Always, I say, get connected with a CSAT or um, a uh, partner specialist therapist and then ask if they have training in sex therapy. If you're really trying to do this part of your work, I would definitely suggest asking them if they um, do have training in sex therapy as that would be really helpful if you're at this stage. Also, if you are in coupleship, I would suggest always uh, starting weekly couple check-ins about your recovery. I know we talked about that early on, and I know it seems simple, um, but going back to that idea of, like I said, uh, Bill call like the ghost in the bedroom, uh, this is a way rather than creating wonderment and maybe questions, you're actually opening yourself up and being vulnerable. So allowing there to be weekly check-ins or maybe bi-weekly check-ins, depending on where the couple is at, um, about your recovery or therapeutic work. I engage in more communication with your partner around uh, sexual pleasure and uh, your sexual experience and sexual excitement. Again, this can be triggering. So this is why I always say make sure you're connected with the therapist, see how you guys are communicating, um, because this is work that can be triggering. And so it's really important to make sure that you're at a stable stage to be able uh, to do this because you're moving towards sexual and emotional intimacy. So you have to talk about sex, but you also need to make sure that you're emotionally connected um, throughout it. I would also say um, another thing is, like, you need to allow space for unforeseen triggers and somatic responses. We're talking about a very physical act here. While we're talking about emotional intimacy, we're talking about sexual intimacy. That can be uh, trigger very somatic responses, so you need to make sure that there's space for any unforeseen triggers or somatic responses. And that leads back to always having open communication about why you as a coupleship are doing this. Check in with each other, not just when you're trying to engage in these exercises, but outside of the bedroom, basically. Check in with each other, speak with each other, uh, know why and what you're, why you're doing this and, and what you're doing about it. Those are great tips and tools. Uh, Dr. Piper, thank you so much. I am speaking with Dr. Piper Grant, a licensed clinical psychologist, sex therapist, certified sex addictions therapist, and founder of NUMI Psychology. If you'd like to find out more about a retreat, you can go to 
NUMI, which is spelled N-U-M-I, retreats.com. There are opportunities for you to do some healing around your sexuality, whether you're a partner, a sex addict, or a couple. So thank you so much for sharing. Uh, If you ever need an excellent co-therapist in Bali to help you with work, uh, my hand is raised, and I'm ready to go. Because <laughs> my favorite jeweler, jewelry designer <laughs> in the world lives there, right next to Mick Jagger, uh, Carolyn Tyler. Have you ever heard I of her? I know who you're talking about. Yes, of course, of course, of course. Carolyn is definitely well-known in Bali. So um, Very you'll just amazing. have to come visit. We'll just have to. Well, like, absolutely, I would love there. to do that. So <laughs> let's keep in touch and uh, keep me posted on other projects and opportunities that Thank you have you. for our listeners and clinicians alike. You are amazing just having this podcast. I want you to know, I know that your listeners um, probably think the same thing, but it's just amazing to offer this resource to our community. It's awesome. Thank you. Well, you know what? I absolutely am blessed, and really, we are over half a million open downloads a week strong. And my first week, I had 36 open downloads. So that tells you there are a lot of people out there that just want the help. And getting to talk to experts like you is what makes the difference. So thank you so much, and we will. We'll keep in touch. Thank you. Take care. Uh Uh-huh. You take care. All right. That, That was Dr. Piper. Uh, Grant, and I'm just so excited to have had her on the show. You can tell she knows what she's doing. Um, Listen, I'm going to tell you a little secret. i got to go because it's my birthday eve, and um, I actually have to be on television tomorrow talking about National Singles Day, which is Friday, and I have to be on the air at 6.20 a.m., So if you're interested in looking at that, uh, feel free to Google it after 6.20 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I'm sure you'll be able to see it. It's all about having gratitude for wherever your life is and whatever direction you, you intend to go. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll catch you next week for more Sex Help with Carol, the coach.